Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody. So glad you've been with us here today, worshiping. You know, that song we just sang really ties in well that this Jesus, this Messiah, this hope of the world ties in with our series, ties in what we're talking about today. And we're glad you're back in week two of our series called The Gifts of Hope. We're looking at the gifts that the Magi or wise men brought and worshiped Jesus through those gifts. There's hope for you and I this Christmas because of each of these gifts. Not only is hope important for us, but you know, you need to understand that back then when Jesus came on the scene, the Jewish people were living in a time where they were really hoping their Messiah was going to come, that their Messiah was going to come soon. They were hoping beyond hope that the prophecies that they had heard about would soon come true, that a Messiah, a Savior would save them. And specifically, they were thinking in the context of saving them from their Roman oppressors. Little did they know, their Messiah had indeed come. Their Messiah had arrived on the scene and he had come to save you, that, save them, to rescue them, though not from their Roman occupiers as they supposed. The prophecies were indeed coming true. The Messiah had come. Hope was in the air. And I believe that hope is in the air for us today. And God wants to speak hope into our lives through the message he has for us today. Now, what was the scene when the Magi brought their gifts to Jesus? You know the scene, right? We all know what it was. There were three Magi, perhaps made of porcelain or perhaps made of wood, right? And they had long flowing robes. There were farm animals in attendance, such as sheep and a single cow that was lying down. There were shepherds, and one of the shepherds carried a sheep on his shoulders. There was a pitched roof, right? And then there was an angel that was sitting on top of that roof. And of course, there was baby Jesus glowing because of the nightlight that was under the cradle. We know the scene, right? Oh, wait a second. That's not how it really went. That's what you and I are used to at our nativity scene in our house or at, you know, grandma's house. That wasn't the real story. As we've said, we don't actually know how many magi were present. The reality is there were probably many, many. We'll talk about that a little more next week. Also, when they arrived, Mary and Joseph were no longer in the cave where Jesus was born. Most scholars believe that by the time the Magi arrived on the scene, Jesus would have been anywhere over 12 months old, up to even 18 and 24 months of age. So when you set up your nativity scene, I'm, you've already set it up, maybe what you could do since, you know, the, the Magi, the wise men arrived, you know, 18, 24 months later, maybe you should put them, move them about six blocks away from your nativity scene, right? I don't know about you, but when you hear all that, for me, that changes my visual of the Christmas nativity. Now you have these wise men who show up, you know, 18, 24 months later. They, they, instead of entering a cave, they knock on a door. Mary answers, and there's this little toddler who's, you know, wreaking havoc in the background. If you have a two-year-old or you've ever had a two-year-old, 
you understand kind of this visual, and that's what makes this, this wise men, these magi, bowing down to a toddler even more interesting. So, with that in mind, let's reread the Christmas story, this portion of it that we've been looking at in Matthew chapter 2. It tells us this in verse 9. It says, The star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the who was. What does it say? Where the child was. Not the infant, where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the what? What does it say? They entered the house and saw the child. Where his mother Mary, uh, with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were pretty strange gifts for a toddler if you really think about it. In fact, have you ever gotten a strange or weird or bizarre gift? You know, when we started LifePoint back in 2,000 years, uh, 2000, back in 2003, uh, yeah, 2,000 years ago. When we started back in 2003, uh, I, I brought on a friend of mine as our associate pastor, Trey Hinkle. And uh, I remember it was one of those early uh, Christmas uh, white elephant gift staff parties. And what we would do is we would have, you know, the Mary, everybody, you know, would bring their spouses. And so we'd have each per, uh, person bring a gift. And with the couple, one, one of the gifts would be, a, you know, like a legit gift and one would, you know, $15 to $30 and one would be a gag gift. And so that's kind of how we, we played the white elephant game. Well, Trey, it turns out, bought, brought a box of C's candy. We didn't know it was him at first, you know, because you don't, you know, it's white elephant. We don't know who, who gave it, but he was the one who brought the C's candy. And C's, of course, is one of my all-time favorite candies. So Heather and I, in this game, we were like, okay, that's the legit gift. And Heather and I did everything we could to win the C's candy in the game. We managed to pull it off. And so I unwrapped the C's candy and, uh, from the wrapping paper, and then I opened the unopened box of C's candy because I wanted to have a piece, you know, before someone else tried to get it. And lo and behold, looking in that box, every single piece of C's candy had bit, been bitten into was only half there. Trey starts busting up, so we, we knew right then and there he was the one who brought the gift. He had carefully unwrapped the wrapping paper. He had carefully taken off the gold sticker on the box itself, and he had went in and eaten every single piece of the C's candy and then rewrapped the box, put the gold sticker on, put the wrapping paper back on. It looked like it had never been touched, never been opened. I mean, that was a crazy, bizarre gift uh, that Trey gave. When Heather and I were newly married and, and you know, we were, you know, we were dirt poor. I mean, we really were. And we were, we were shopping in Southern California. I don't know if it was the Costa Mesa or Newport Beach. I'm picturing on the 55 freeway, it was probably like Costa Mesa. Um, they had a swap meet back then. And I remember we were there and, and we were shopping, trying to get amazing, you know, gifts. It was our first time as a couple buying gifts for family. And we found these really cool pictures and we got one for ourselves, for our house. And, and we got one for my brother. And man, I got to tell you, we were so excited about this gift. It was this large uh, picture, it was framed, and it was a picture of a couple of wolves. And I, I mean, we were excited. We we're like, man, they look amazing. The picture's awesome. So we wrapped it and we gave it to my brother and he opened it up and he was like, oh, 
wolves. And he kind of chuckled and looked at us. He's like, you guys really like wolves, don't you? <laughs> to this day, it's still a joke in our family. 20, whatever, six, seven, eight years later, he's like, oh, you guys really like wolves. So much so, uh, years ago, my, uh, uh, my brother's wife, Christina, she made me uh, um, this back uh, um, made out of uh, beans and corn or whatever it was where you could heat it up, this back pad to help me with my back. And the cloth that she used was, anybody want to guess what was on the cloth? What was it? Yeah, you got it. It was wolves, kind of in, in honor of that gift that we got them. And it was a bizarre gift. It was a strange gift, not to us, but, but to them. The Magi gave Jesus, this toddler, strange gifts to a, for a toddler. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the reality is they were incredibly valuable and they were useful gifts even. And they were symbolic of Jesus and who he was and who he would become. Today, we're looking at the gift of myrrh. It was definitely the weirdest, the most bizarre gift of the three gifts that were brought to Mary and Joseph. But it was the most inspiring gift. It was the gift that can let us know that we can truly find hope this Christmas season because of this gift of myrrh. You see, the gift of myrrh tells you and it tells me that all that God spoke through the prophets is coming true. That God is true to his word. That this is the child of hope. We know him as Jesus, Messiah, the hope of the world as we just sang about. You see, the gift of myrrh, more than any of the other gifts, shows us the incredible depth of the love of God. It shows us just how much that God loves us. So what is myrrh and what did it represent? Well, myrrh is this extremely fragrant and valuable gum-like substance or resin that came from this small bushy tree. It's mentioned 17 different times in the Bible, 14 in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament. The Greek word, uh, which is the new, what the new Testament was written in, the Greek word for myrrh is the word Smyrna. I'm curious, anybody watching or listening right now, does that name or word mean something to you? Smyrna, have you heard that before? In Revelation chapter two, verses eight through 11, <clears throat> Jesus speaks to the church that are in the city of Smyrna. And they were suffering, which is interesting as we tie all this together. Jesus encouraged them to remain faithful to God, even though they were suffering and even facing death, the passage says. Death. I really want you to hold on to that idea as we, as we will come back to it this morning. Now, myrrh had several uses. One, it was used as a beauty treatment. We see that in Esther chapter two, where for six months, Esther used myrrh of oil, myrrh of oil on her body uh, to kind of prepare her before she was able to go in to see the king. Six months. It was the ultimate you know, spa experience for Esther. Myrrh is also uh, used as a perfume. We see that in Proverbs chapter seven where uh, uh, the person perfumed their bed with myrrh. You see it in Song of Solomon chapter five and chapter seven that they were prefer perfumed with myrrh. Myrrh is also a painkiller. For example, 
And the story of Jesus on the cross that we see in Mark chapter 15, they ordered um, that, they, or I should say they offered, that G, they offered Jesus this, this, this uh, mix, uh, this drink that had um, wine and, and myrrh mixed into it to help dull the pain while Jesus was being crucified. But Jesus rejected that because he wanted to feel all the pain. He wanted to feel the full weight and force of our sins. It's also an antiseptic in, in our modern world that's used in mouthwashes and toothpaste. Finally, myrrh is an embalming fluid or an embalming mixture. It was used by Jews during the first century, the time of Jesus, to prepare people for burial. In John chapter 19, it tells us that Joseph and Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And notice the next verse, it says, taking Jesus's body, the two of them wrapped it with those spices in strips of linen, 75 pounds of it. And then they laid Jesus in the tomb. It's interesting that myrrh was there at the beginning of the life of Jesus and it was there at the end of the life of Jesus. Now this part's really fascinating to me. Ancient rabbis, they associated myrrh with sacrificial death, especially as it referenced the story of Abraham when he went to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. This is interesting. The root word of Moriah is the word more. The Hebrew word for myrrh is more. In other words, Mount Moriah, the mountain of myrrh, where a father went to sacrifice his son. So the ancient Hebrew rabbi connected myrrh with death, especially a father sacrificing his son. Jesus, we know, would be sacrificed by his father for the sins of the world, literally just a couple hundred yards away from where Abraham went to sacrifice his son Isaac on the mountain of Myrrh, on Mount Moriah. So it's no wonder that, that Christian scholars associate the Magi's gift of Myrrh as prophetic of Jesus's death. So imagine, these Magi give to this infant, this, this, this toddler, the gift of Myrrh which at the time of Jesus, it was associated with death. It was used in burials. Mary opens this, these presents. She gets the gold and that makes sense. She gets the frankincense. That certainly makes sense. And, and she gets the myrrh and she's like, oh, thank you. You gave me a gift of death. Wow, uh, I don't know what to say. Have you ever gotten a gift maybe like that where you received the gift and it just sort of bombed, so to speak? Heather and I, at Christmas, we give our kids socks every year and the kids open up the socks and they're like, oh, wow, thanks mom and dad, socks. <laughs> to this day now, it's kind of a, a running joke in our family uh, as they, they anticipate which, you know, which box will be the socks. But what did the angel say to Mary in Matthew chapter one and in Luke chapter one, he said this, you will call him Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. And how did Jesus do that? It's because he went to the place of myrrh. 
He went to the place where myrrh is used the most, most, the place of death. Don't miss it. No one is saved by Jesus's life or his example or his words, which were all, of course, incredible. Salvation only comes through Jesus's death. Recognizing that Jesus took our place, that Jesus died on a cross for our sins, and then that by us surrendering our life to him, then and only then is there salvation for us. Scholars agree that myrrh represents Jesus as this lamb of God who was literally born to suffer and die for the forgiveness of our sins. Think about this for a moment. Jesus is literally the only one in history born with the distinct purpose of death. So if you and I, if we don't see the, the shadow of the cross when we're here at Christmas time, when we're looking at the crib, the reality is we don't see the crib clearly. The purpose of that crib was the cross. Jesus dying on the cross was the plan. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a, oops, we better try it this way. In fact, Revelation chapter 13 says it this way. It says that he's the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. It was always the plan. The child was born to die. Maybe Bruce Springsteen was born to run, you know, but, but this child was born to die. In fact, it was actually prophesied 700 years prior before the birth of Jesus that he would be born, that he would suffer, and that he would die, and even die on what, at the, what they didn't know 700 years ago, but at the time they, they discovered they would die on a cross. He would suffer and die. Now, no matter where you are right now, uh, sitting in your living room, watching this, whatever you're doing right now, here's what, I, I need you to do something physical for a moment. I want you to raise your hand if you're a football fan. So everybody, no matter where you are right now, raise your hand if you're a football hand. Now, raise your hand if you're watching me on your you know, phone or tablet or computer, but you're watching the, the football game in the background, right, on, on the TV. Raise my, your hand if you're doing both at the same time. Come on, I see you. I know that that's some of you, right? So imagine this. <clears throat> imagine, you're a football fan. Imagine if I could predict what two teams would be in the 2021 Super Bowl. I, you know, people do that. That's not necessarily, you know, that could be lucky and that can happen. Now, imagine if I picked the, the two teams that would be in the Super Bowl, and imagine if I had picked the exact score and of which team had which, you know, score. And I predicted it with each, how many points were scored in each quarter. That would be pretty remarkable, right? That'd be pretty impressive. You might even want to, you know, use me uh, for some bets in Vegas or something, right? And so that would be impressive. impressive. But how about this? Imagine if football was still a thing and we were still around 700 years from now, imagine if I could predict the two teams 700 years from now who would be in the Super Bowl and again I could predict the exact score. That'd make me a prophet, wouldn't it? A prophet like no other. Well, that was essentially who Isaiah was. Isaiah essentially did the same thing. He prophesied 700 years before the birth of Christ, this very detailed account of how Jesus would die, 
of what it would look like, of what he would endure on the cross. It's as if Isaiah was actually present at the crucifixion of Jesus. He wrote in such a detailed, accurate way. You know, I can't help but wonder if Mary connected Isaiah's prophecy with the Magi's gift of myrrh. Or at what point did she maybe make the connection? In fact, I wonder if Mary used that myrrh that were given by the wise men, the Magi, I wonder if that was part of that 75 pounds of myrrh that was used by Joseph and Nicodemus. I wonder if it was the Magi themselves who brought all that myrrh. So myrrh represents that the child, the Messiah, would eventually suffer and die in order to save us. Why? Well, I got to tell you our problem because we all have a problem. Why did the Messiah, why did Jesus have to come and suffer and die? We have a problem in Isaiah. That's the passage I want to look at for the next couple of minutes that was prophesied 700 years prior of Jesus's crucifixion. And then we pick it up in Isaiah chapter 53, verse six. And Isaiah, the prophet described our problem this way. He said, all of us like sheep, say like sheep, no matter where you are right now, say like sheep. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. See, that's Isaiah's way of saying we've all sinned. Isaiah says that you and I, we are like sheep. And unfortunately, that isn't a compliment. If Isaiah had said all of us are like lions, you know, that'd be a compliment, right? If all of us are like uh, eagles, that would be a compliment. But when we're compared to sheep, that's a say, essentially saying you are not the sharpest knife in the drawer, among other things. So you can train a lot of animals, can't you? You can train a dog, you can train a bird, you can train a hamster, you can train an elephant even, you can train a pig even, and even some cats. But you can't train sheep. There are no trained sheep at a circus. Yeah, I mean, you've never met anybody. You've never had someone come up to you and tell you about their pet sheep and say, hey, come over and watch my sheep sit. I had to practice that line a few times because if I had said that wrong, uh, I'd unfortunately be on YouTube and that would have been bad. <laughs> okay, I had to try a sheep joke. I know that didn't go over well with anyone. I'm the only one laughing right now. There's no one in this room. Scott's back there. I don't know. Is he laughing? Did you, was that a good one? Uh, okay, Scott said that was a good one. So uh, <laughs> anyway, all right. Being called a sheep, it's not a compliment for a few reasons. First of all, sheep are weak, okay? They're defenseless. If a coyote or a lion or any other wild animal comes after a sheep, what can it do to defend itself? They don't have fangs. They don't have quills, you know, to shoot out. They're not fast. They can't fly away. They don't have any, uh, uh, you know, special markings to blend in. They don't have anything poisonous on them to help them. They're just weak and defenseless but they're also witless. They don't say, hey, uh, Baba, let's, uh, you run that way and I'll run that way and then at least the, you know, the wild animal will have to choose. No, they don't even do that. You know what sheep do? They huddle up and they say, hey, Mr. Predator, come take your pick. 
We're all available. Why? Because they're witless. In other words, they don't think for themselves. Sheep, actually, they just tend to follow the crowd. In fact, this is a true story. Maybe you've heard this story. It was back in 2005 in Turkey. There are 1,500 dumb sheep who followed one another off of a cliff. True story. You can check it out yourself. You, you would think after the first couple sheep started disappearing off of a cliff that somebody said, hey, I'm getting out of this line, right? None of them did that. 1,500 sheep went over the cliff. The first 400 died. Remarkably, the rest of them lived. Why? Well, because the first 400 basically became this sheep pillow, if you will, to soften the landing for the other 1,100 sheep. They're witless. They just follow one another. Sheep also wander. Sheep are wayward. Shepherds would have to lock them up in a, in a pen at night because they would want to wander or, or, or then they would be you know, eaten by predators. In fact, if particular sheep were just prone to wander, and they were prone to continue go, go away and you know, you'd have to leave the sheep and go after the one. If that was the case, you know what a shepherd would do to help that animal so that it wouldn't wander anymore? Some of you might know this. You know what the shepherd would do? He'd break the sheep's leg. Then he'd carry it around with him while the sheep healed. That sheep got to know his voice, to know the shepherd even better. See where I'm going with that? That's a sermon for a whole nother time uh, that, that we can do. But that's what would happen. Well, why? Because sheep are wayward. They wander. When the prophet Isaiah says that we all are what? Like sheep. He wasn't saying, wow, you're amazing. He was saying this, Isaiah 53 verse 6. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. In other words, we've wandered from what God has for us and we just wanna do our own thing. Yet the Lord laid on him, the suffering servant, the one we would call Jesus, the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. So you have to remember this passage is written 700 years before Jesus was born. And it went on to say and describe this cross experience. And it says this in verse 7, Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. And if you've read the New Testament, you know that's in there. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. That whole crucifixion uh, narrative, is, that's what happened. And if you've ever been mistreated, rejected, uh, overlooked, unjustly criticized, or misunderstood with what Jesus went through, you can know Jesus understands what you're going through. We talked about that last week. Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, Isaiah 53, verse 3, he said, Jesus, or this, this suffering servant, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him, and, he, and we looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Isaiah 53, verse 4, yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. See, that's Jesus. That's our Savior. That's the suffering servant on a cross. Now, by the way, this is interesting. Myrrh uh, was a substance that gave off its best scent when it was crushed. I think about that when we go to the next verse, Isaiah 53, verse 5, where it says of the Savior that he was pierced for our rebellion. 
That's uh, the, the, the soldier piercing his side. He was crushed. There's that word. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Or as some translation says, by his stripes, we are healed. That's what Jesus would do for you and for me on the cross. Something that was prophesied 700 years before the Magi would present this gift of myrrh, reminding us of the magnitude of his suffering and the depths of God's love that he has for you and he has for me. Now, Isaiah 53 goes on, we don't have time today, but it goes on to give a very detailed account of, of the suffering of Jesus on the cross. I want to encourage you this week, as we, excuse me, think about this gift of myrrh, would you take the time to read through Isaiah 53 and worship God and meditate on it and pr praise God for what our suffering servant Jesus did for us? But here's what I want you to think about right now today. What sets Christianity apart from any other religion in the world? You know what sets it apart? It's the bloody death of an innocent victim. The bloody death of an innocent victim, that's what sets Christianity apart. It's that God himself would become human, that he would be crushed for our sins so that you and I could live. So when you visualize these wise men, these magi, bringing the infant Jesus this specific gift of myrrh, a substance that was used to, you know, embalm the dead, you understand God was telling us in advance that the Lamb of God, his son, would be slain for the sins of the world. He would be slain for our sins, your sins and mine. Jesus understood this when he said of himself in Luke 9, 22, he said, the son of man must suffer many things. He'll be rejected by the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. And then Jesus said this in Luke chapter nine, verse 23, right after he said that, he said this, if any of you wanna be my follower, now let me tell you what Jesus is not going to say. Okay, get ready for this. He's not gonna say, if you wanna be my follower, just pray some prayer and, you're and you'll be blessed and prosperous for the rest of your life. He didn't say, hey, you just pray a little prayer of salvation and you can then just you know, go on doing whatever it is you wanna do because your sins are forgiven. He didn't say that. What he said, he said, if you want to be my disciple, notice what the next words are. He says, you must give up your own way. It's not about you. You must give up your own way. He goes on and says, you must take up your cross daily. In other words, you die to yourself and to your ways. Remember the sheep thing? And to your will. And then he said, and you follow me. Follow my ways, follow my will for your life. You see, following Jesus is not a hobby. It's not an add-on. It's not something to, you know, make you feel good during the season when we are opening Christmas presents. It's God becoming flesh, born of a virgin, never sinning so that becoming sin for us so that we could have our sins forgiven. See, that's called the gospel. That's called the, the great news. It's good news, it's great news beyond measure that God would do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That his son Jesus would be crushed for our rebellion, beaten so that you and I can be made whole. By his stripes, we are healed.
He endured so that you and I could live. So I don't know about you, but I don't follow Jesus because I have to or because it makes me a better person or because it gives me something to do, you know, every once in a while on a Sunday. I follow him because of who he is and what he did for me. I give my life to him because of who he is and what he did for me. What about you? You see, Jesus died so that you don't have to. That is good news of great joy, amazing joy. That is the hope that you and I have at Christmas this year as we look at this gift of myrrh, prophecy fulfilled exactly as God foretold it. Will you pray with me? And as we get ready to pray, I wanna invite you to thank Jesus. Heavenly Father, almighty God, we thank you, Jesus, for giving us hope that we have a future beyond the grave, that you died so that we could live. You died so that we don't have to. So Jesus, we honor you. You're worthy of praise. And I'm guessing some of you, it's been a while since you've taken the time to pause and just thank God. So would you do that right now? Would you just say something like this? Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. You're worthy of praise. There's none like you. I worship you. Would you just say something like that to him now? There might be some of you who are watching or listening right now and you have yet to receive this gift of salvation that God has offered you through his son, Jesus. I wanna tell you something. If that's you, God invites you into the family of God. God loves you so, so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to suffer on a cross, to die so that you could live. That's how much he loves you. And if that's you, and if you say, you know what? I need his love, I need his grace, I need his mercy, I need his forgiveness. If that's you, I'm gonna invite you to pray with me right now. Invite Jesus into your life. It's not even these exact words. It's more that you would mean it in your heart. Would you pray with me and say, Heavenly Father, forgive me of all my sins. Jesus, save me. Jesus, change me, make me new. Jesus, I believe you died for me, for my sins, so that I could live. Jesus, fill me with your spirit so I can follow you, so that I can love you more and more each day. Jesus, my life is no longer my own. I give it to you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. God, hear every single one of these prayers. We rejoice in a savior who died so we don't have to. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.